Hello there, Think Squad. This is Joel Sedecase, host of the Think Pod, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. I've been doing apologetics AMAs, Ask Me Anythings, on Discord, a social app where there are voice chat and text chat rooms. One of the moderators of the politics server on Discord has been inviting me his name is Ellipsis. He's been inviting me to do these apologetics AMAs, and we've been doing them on Thursday nights once or twice a month. And I got to tell you, they have been so much fun. And um, my own faith has been grown by it, and I want to share this experience with you. So here's the next installment of these AMAs that I've been doing. I hope it's edifying to you and entertaining, but also I hope you hear something that will help you become better equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message in the next conversation that you have with someone about philosophy, religion, theology, etc. So without any further ado, here's the next installment of my Apologetics AMA on Discord. How about this one? Oh, Jordan H. I was wondering if there is a, if there is an objective hermeneutical system one can use to interpret biblical texts. If so, what is it? And why so? Aha! This is this is great. Um, All right. Yeah. New covenant. New new. Uh, so I, ellipsis, and I may disagree here. I I'm a new covenant theologian. Um. So there are these different schemes that we use, or systems. Schemes sounds negative, but um, I just mean uh, um, structures that we use to interpret the Bible. How does the whole Bible fit together? And um, on the one hand, you've got covenant theology. On the other hand, you've got dispensationalism. And then in the middle, you've got um, new covenant theology. And there are different variations of, of all of them. A new covenant theology emphasizes how all of scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, including the Old Testament law, how God has one plan to save his people, but the new covenant is distinct and new and began with Christ. Now, um, uh so that's one way of answering your question. Another way, which I think complements it, is the way that I believe is best to read scripture is, um, okay, I'm going to give two parts to this answer. One is the grammatical, grammatico-historical hermeneutic. And what that is basically is uh, you're reading scripture, you're trying to find out what scripture actually said, and you're interpreting it in its context. What does scripture actually mean? What is, the, what is the author trying to convey? Um, there's another spin on that that I really like. I, it's called, I didn't come up with this, but it's called the redemptive historical uh, method or, or hermeneutic. And I think that that is very much in line with New Covenant theology. Basically, uh, loosely described, I would say that it is a way of reading scripture where it all centers around Jesus Christ. So what it is, is it's a way of recognizing that there are two authors to every passage. There's the human author, you know, Ezra, um, Moses, David, Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, and which I think is Paul, by the way. And then, um, or maybe Luke writing down one of Paul's sermons. But you've got the human author, and then you've got the divine author as well. And the, the divine author, God, is doing things that the human author doesn't even necessarily understand. And so you've got, you know, Isaiah writing about the Messiah or the servant of the Lord and it's talking about how by his stripes we are healed. 
how could Isaiah possibly have known that Jesus was going to be whipped by the cat of nine tails by the Roman guards and by his by those stripes um, as part of his crucifixion, we would be healed. Well, I don't think Isaiah could have known that. At least he couldn't have known that in the flesh. But we can read Isaiah 53 and we can go, um, using the redemptive historical hermeneutical method and we can say um okay i can recognize what isaiah was saying here and there may have been an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy but i can also recognize that this points to jesus and the, the reason i think that this is very justified is because this is exactly how jesus interprets scripture um in passages like luke 24 on the road to emmaus there are these two disciples walking along and jesus after he's risen from the dead shows them all the things in the scriptures that would be the old testament scriptures that point to him in other words uh, jesus opens the bible and goes uh, okay nehemiah that whole story points to me genesis that whole story see how it points to me and he's showing them how all of scripture is is centered around him and so um so new covenant theology i i believe is is a good uh I think it's the I think it's the the biblical way of interpreting scripture, um, kind of seeing how it all fits together, and then uh, the redemptive historical um, hermeneutic is, uh, I believe, a very good way of of reading each individual passage. And just just to kind of put some shoe leather on this, as my friend likes to say, when I'm doing family worship with my kids. We are, we re, we're reading in the Old Testament right now. We're actually reading in Second Kings, and we're reading about all these different. We're reading about Elijah and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And you read these stories, and you go, "Okay, what is the original author trying to communicate here?" But and so, what's happening in the story? But then we also say, "Now, how does this all point to Jesus?" And I am just thrilled to see my kids drawing out these themes as we've now read through several books of the Bible together as a family, where they're now, they're, they're understanding how all the Bible points to Jesus and they can, they're beginning to see it. They're beginning to pick it out and they're beginning to see how God, um, how, how God likes to tell the same stories over and over and how those stories are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So if, if you, if you try to get to what the scripture originally meant and then you try to understand how it points to Jesus, I think you're going to be on the right track. But that's the, but that's the whole point of hermeneutics is trying to find that original context. And while it, to me, it seems plausible that we could look to see what it, Jesus uh, meant. The problem is that this, isn't it this sort of like kind of equivocating human minds with Jesus's um, version of using scripture? I mean, like when Jesus quotes text, it could be that he has knowledge beyond what we're what we're capable of when he's looking at a certain passage and you know like it's not that like people agree necessarily on what is considered like the closest to god or to jesus in fact like if we there are different groups so like in ancient um, heresies like Gnosticism, mm-hmm. Arianism, that tried to look at the context and made arguments using scripture in order to make utterly like incorrect uh, um, Christian doctrines. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering how we wouldn't run into the same mistake they did if we're just going to look at historical context and see what Jesus has meant, because there's certainly people out there who typically um, who do go against um, God's wishes mm-hmm. and yeah. um, his interpretation. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it's it's something we have to watch out for every single time we open up Scripture. Uh, We need to approach Scripture humbly. 
Um, we need to approach it. Uh, we need we need help. You know, if you're reading the Bible and you're coming up with some brand new doctrine no one's ever come up with, that's a huge red flag. Um, part of the reason why that is is because God has guided his church, his people, over the last 2,000 years and really over the last 3,500 years and even really ultimately going back to... Adam and Eve. God has always guided his people to be able to understand his words. Um, we're also in a unique position in history because not only do we have centuries and millennia of scholarship, but we also, uh, so for example, Arianism has been refuted. If, if, you know, when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, we've got 2,000 years of dealing with Arianism we can use to refute them, which is pretty cool because they're, they're, they're Arians. They believe Jesus is a created being. I mean, they're not exactly Arians, but you understand what I'm saying. They're like modern day Arians. It's an ancient heresy that they're peddling. Um, but we're also in a great position because we have the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, for someone to say, well, hey, listen, you know, the Arians... And uh, the uh, whatever the Gnostics. very yeah Gnostics, thank you, uh, and the Patrapasians and all these different you know heretical groups. Well, they had the same Bible we did. Well, yeah, sure, but they were reading it wrong. And someone might say, well, yeah, but maybe you're reading it wrong. Maybe. But the good thing about scripture is that scripture interprets scripture and scripture is clear. When God speaks, he doesn't stutter. So the Arian who says that God is, a, that Jesus is a created being is wrong. And we can refute that heresy. And that is that ultimately that is what happened to the heresy of Arianism. Um, in John 16, 13, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now I know that's a prophecy that's a, a promise for the apostles and it's jesus authorizing the writing of the epistles i believe but it's also a promise for us we have the holy spirit so the holy spirit guides us and um and lest we still be uneasy about this um first corinthians 2 16 says for who has understood the mind of the lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of christ so to what you said are we equating or equivocating our human wisdom with christ's wisdom because christ had knowledge we don't have well if if we are in christ we have the mind of christ uh philippians wait, 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 just really quick i just want for clarification purposes mm -hmm. when you say mind of christ i don't think you mean like literally that i have the mind of god i know all things mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah, correct. I, I correct. Correct. No. Um, no. Uh, in, instead, God. If God hadn't revealed Himself to us, He'd be completely mysterious to us. And um, even the things that He has revealed in Scripture, uh, we can't understand without His help. A lot of that has to do with our sin, what's called the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on our minds, our thinking. But yes, precisely, fall of man. Right. Exactly. So, in. Um, in earlier in that passage in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person we might say, on the other hand, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then here's that quote that I said earlier, verse 16, but who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So um, we don't have to worry ab about God's um, 
God's God's will, God's purpose, what we need to know about God being forever shrouded in mystery from us. If we come to God in, in uh, repentance and faith, when you mean like shrouded in mystery, I'm just like, another clarification. Sure. Do you mean his like his eternal essence? Um, like I mean, in like the Aristotelian sense, like of the essence is what makes it. Yeah. Uh, a thing what it is yeah so we can't know like the true essence of god like it, like if we're like paul being blinded by his light in you, a sense you know the yeah that, yes uh you know the interesting thing about that god's god's divine nature and his eternal power are the two things that god says all men know so that's that's kind of the funny thing um is for all of these different metaphysical systems that people have come up with whether um you know stoicism or materialism or um idealism neoplatonism things like that we're trying to figure out what the world you know what's ultimately real romans 1 18 through 24 says we already know God has revealed his eternal power and his divine nature to us. So the problem is that we suppress that truth. And that suppression is hard to overcome. It's actually impossible to overcome. This is why, you know, we just talked about the noetic effects of sin. That word noeo, having to do with the mind. The word in Greek for repentance is metanoeo which basically means to be trans-minded, to, to have a mind transplant. Um, we... We need, because of our sin, the fall of man, as you said earlier, we need to have our thinking radically transformed. So that is something that we cannot do to ourselves. That is only something that God can do. And when God does it, he gives us the mind of Christ. Does he reveal everything about himself? I don't think so. But he, according to 2 Peter 1, 3, he does give us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So we don't have to worry that maybe Arianism is right, or maybe Gnosticism is actually correct, or uh, maybe God's really not there. We can trust God's word, you know? And I'm sorry to interrupt you again. Go ahead. You say us. Who are you talking about when you say us? Is Does this also include, like, the satanic cults, or is it just no. Christians? And, no. Or is it... it or is it just like just like or just like Protestants or like any uh, who you say is us and what distinguishes yeah. from the not us? Okay. Uh, yes. Um, sorry. One one second. So, um, I, I Bible believing Christians, born again Christians, the the ones who, the ones who the ones who have meta meta noeod, uh, the ones who have repented and trusted in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, who have the mind of Christ, who've been adopted by God, who've been justified by him, all the different ways that the Bible talks about being born again. All right, cool. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you guys, um, but so, Jordan, I want to give uh, Jesus a chance, uh, or Jesus, or you want to pronounce it, uh, a chance to ask his question, and just to let you know, so Joel, I'm, I'm good till about, uh, for about 30 more minutes. Come on. Yeah, I can do that, sure. All right, we're good? All right. Yeah. So if you want to stick around, that's great. Excellent. So uh, thank you, Jordan, for asking your question. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and unmute uh, Jesus or Jesus to ask his question about Bible translations. Uh, what's up? Um, hey. So I have a question, and it's mainly about um, the new revised version of the Bible, the King James Version, and the New American Standard Version. Okay. Right? Um, and I really want to know where you stand on it. Uh, because I've seen like, a lot of American pastors and they all use the King James version. Why is that? And what version do you, do you support? Oh, okay. Yeah, good question. 
Um, well, <laughs> every pastor, you'd have to ask every single pastor. Um, because everyone's going to have their own justification for the translation that they use. I know churches that use the Message Bible, which is a terrible translation, or um, the New Living translation, which is better, but you know, not exactly a literal translation. Um, the, as for the ones that use the King James, there's probably two primary schools. There's there's probably some that um, that they think that the manuscript tradition of the King James is better. And they they like that stream because there's different streams of of uh, manuscripts that the different translations are based on and and whichever one you think is uh, the the better stream if you will like the Alexandrian versus the um, uh, Antiochene no that can't be right um, but um, oh Byzantine and so so there are these different manuscript streams and um some people like the king james they trust that stream better i've been convinced that it's not the most reliable stream um i also will say i think some people like the king james because it's got this long tried and true history it's it's been proven over time and um you know a lot of the modern translations they're created by publishers other corporate corporate interests and things like that and you know some people might be worried that the companies are maybe in uh, watering things down or injecting yeah, that's what i was gonna i was gonna touch on that after but yeah yeah so so i think that's a concern i mean the, the you're gonna run into the same problem side note you run into the same problem with the king james because it was you know the the king wanted certain things in there and didn't want other things in there and so um <clears throat> Uh, the other reason why maybe certain pastors or traditions really like the King James, I mean, you do have King James onlyists, and these guys are almost cultish with their devotion to the King James. Uh, you know, they their motto seems to be something along the lines of, uh, you know, the King James Bible was good enough for Moses, and it's good enough for me. And uh, of course, that's absurd because you know. Mo, mo, King James versions from the, you know, the 1500s. So our 1600s. So, um, you know, there's like this cultish devotion to it. And that for me is more of an irrational loyalty. Um, you know, they could tell you their reasons for it, but I, I don't think they're very good ones. But, um, as for the version that I use, that depends more often than not. I will use the Christian standard Bible, which is put out by, um, What's it called? Holman Bible Publishers. Um, I'll also use the the English Standard Version, put out by Crossway. It's an excellent translation. Um, I'll sometimes use the New English Translation, which I think is another really good translation. The footnotes on that are second to none. Lately, I've actually been enjoying the Geneva Bible of 1599. Uh, Canon Press has put out an updated version of it in modern English. And um, if you go to BibleGateway.com, they they have an older version with the these and the thous still in there, but the spelling is updated. And then if you go to the version Bible app, you can get like the original spellings and everything from 1599. So all the V's or U's and all that stuff. And it's it's very hard to read, but it's kind of fun. Um, but I, I do enjoy the Geneva Bible. It's actually older than the King James. Um but uh but but you know my favorite translation right now is the Christian Standard Bible although 
when I preach a passage from the New Testament, I always start by translating it from the original Greek, and then I compare and contrast it with modern translations. Oh, and I really do like the NASB as well. The the 95 is good. There's a newer version, which I people have issues with. Um, I don't really know about those issues, but uh, but I like the 95. But um, but yeah, if I'm if I'm going to be preaching out of the New Testament, I always start with the Greek. Can I ask another question, or is there one question? If if it's something I can, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I don't if, think we have any other questions on the queue. If you get angry at me and want to ask your questions, yell at me in text. But yeah, go ahead, ask your question. Um, what's your opinion on like um, on the corp- corporate interest ch- uh, changing the word of God and changing the Bible? And um, oh, hold on, my Discord's crashing. Uh, okay, there we go. What's your opinion on um, like this, uh, the state, the, the church in the state? Do you think it should be interlinked or do you think it should be state atheism? What's your opinion on that? <laughs> That's two huge questions, you know. Um, I'll answer them as fast as I can, I guess. Um, corporate interest taking things out of the Bible, you'd have to give me examples. The, the good thing is we know beyond any kind of reasonable doubt what the original manuscripts said, the original autographs, and where there are textual variants, textual issues, we can usually get down to what it what it usually said. Um, the there's there's no doctrine that is upset by any of those textual variants. And um uh, you know, no, no, no essential doctrine. I guess I could say I, I don't want to make such a blanket statement, but I don't believe there's any doctrine that's affected by them. As far as corporate interests, um, you, again, you'd have to give me yeah. an example. As for church, I, I'm sorry. You know, we, we should probably uh, ellipsis. Are there any more people waiting right now, or or can, um, should I keep going? There's one question because they keep arguing it in the, in the chat about uh, Leviticus 18:22. All right, maybe we should maybe we should move on to that. And maybe we can come back around to the the church and state one. Sure, why not? So, uh, weapon sag. I'm going to go ahead and unmute you. Ask your question, please. Hey, I want to just give you a heads up at this point. This next question is not going to be appropriate for younger listeners. It's actually a two part question. So, if you've got some kiddos who are listening. And you are probably going to want to fast forward to about the 30 minute mark. Then, of course, if you want, you can come back and listen to this question later. But just giving you a heads up. All right. So my question for you is, if we read um, what the Bible says, it's uh, 1822. This is from the Revised Standard Version. Um, it says, quote, unquote, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And if we imply, if we guess that, say, a woman is reading that, then that basically implies that lesbian couples are the only, um, you know, non-sinful couple. Uh, <laughs> I would also like to argue that, uh, you know, if a couple, like a homosexual couple, is um, in a relationship, however, they have not had any sexual um, interactions with each other, does that still fall under the category of what you might call a sin? Uh, okay, so two questions. Let me let me um, address the first one. 
You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. Uh, that is prohibiting same-sex relationships. It's addressed to men, um, but the implication is that um, a woman reading it ought also not to sleep with a woman. Clearly, God does not prohibit all relationships except for lesbian relationships and we know that because the very first command that god gave to or one of the first commands god gave to adam and eve was be fruitful and multiply and that was a command given for heterosexual procreation so uh, hopefully we can put that one to bed pretty quick i don't know if that was asked tongue-in-cheek or not but um as okay let's see your second question was um remind me again Oh, uh, an asexual, a non-sexual homosexual relationship. Okay, in what sense is it homosexual if it's not uh, physically intimate? Like I'm a man in like a relationship with a man, say like a couple, but um, they haven't, uh, you know, had gay sex or what. How, how are they in a relationship? You know, there's like the different... All right, so this is going to take a while, to, but I'll try and sum it up as quickly as possible. Okay. Like... Say the two get married, right? And married. Well, that's actually not possible. But go on. Let me. All right. What? They don't have, like, they won't have, like, gay sex. What does that mean then? Well. They're married, which I know you think is not possible. Well, it's, it's a, yeah, it's definitionally not possible. Uh, marriage requires a husband and a wife. That's what a marriage is. And so, um, if two men have a ceremony, like a commitment ceremony and they call it a marriage, um, they're just incorrect about what that ceremony is. That that's just not a marriage. Um, now if, um, of course I'm operating within a biblical worldview. And so, um, if someone wants to say, well, who, you know, who are you to define what a marriage is? Well, words do have meanings. And, you know, if you want to come up with an alternative definition of marriage, that it's just any time two human beings uh, of legal age enter into a lifelong commitment with one another, um, I guess my next question will be, well, how do you know that's what a marriage is? And if you just say, well, I've decided that's what a marriage is, my next question will be, well, so what? You know, why would anyone, why, why should I care what you've decided? You know, like, and I don't mean that to be rude or anything or insulting, but just literally like, who are you that you get to change definitions of words or define words in such a way that the rest of us need to adhere to those definitions? You know what I mean? So, um, when people say, well, no, marriage is this, marriage is that, I say, well, here's what the Bible says marriage is, and this is what God says marriage is. Um, if you want to come up with a different definition, you're going to have to, um, you're, you're, you're going to have to account for why that definition is meaningful and authoritative and why anyone else should care about your preference there, about your definition. Or is it just, are you just saying, this is what I feel, this is what I think ought to be the case, in which case I'm going to say, well, I disagree with you. You know, looks like we're at an impasse here. I, I, I just, I don't accept that. You know, and you might say, well, I don't accept yours. Well, okay, I, I guess that's fine. Um in, insofar as it goes, but um, what we need to realize is that changing definitions requires the authority to do so. And um, so, yes, uh, if two men have a commitment ceremony and they're non-sexual, um, you know, man, I mean, we'd have to 
compare what they're doing with what the Bible says is sin. You know, are we just talking about a deep friendship here? You know, like like a David and Jonathan. If uh, if it's in what your if it's in your standpoint, I guess so. I mean, I mean if I'm, I'm, I'm if it's okay, so so if you're. I mean, we'd probably have to go case by case. If we're talking about two people who are, okay, let's say this. Let's say that they're romantically attracted to each other, sexually attracted, where they'd like to have sex with each other, but for whatever reason, they don't. Okay, that attraction is in and of itself uh, twisted, depraved, broken, and sinful. And that attraction, what's that? Sorry, I'm talking. Okay. So... So that that attraction is something to be repented of. And look, um, we are all tempted and we all have desires that are sinful. All of us, every single day, every day, in many ways, we are all tempted to sin. One person is tempted one way, one person is tempted another way. And as I mentioned in an earlier uh, answer, what God calls us to is repentance and faith. God does not call us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to say, I'm going to will this temptation to not tempt me anymore. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to will myself to no longer be tempted by this sin or something like that. Um, what God says, what Jesus says is come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It does not say all who clean up their act and then come to God. God will then say, well, let's see if you're holy enough. No, there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I would say to that couple of guys is I would say, repent of all your sin, Trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners like you and rose from the dead, just as the Bible said that he would, just as the Old Testament said that he would, and who is currently Lord, and and find deliverance and freedom in him. It doesn't mean that all your sinful temptations are going to instantly evaporate. Some of them will be with you till the day you die, but there's freedom, healing, and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we see this countless times where people who have, have been um, susceptible and, and have given in to same-sex attraction, guys who have been uh, practicing homosexuals or non-practicing homosexuals, find freedom in Christ. And, um, and you know, while that hasn't been my particular sin, I've got plenty of sins that the Lord has delivered me from and is delivering me from. And so I never, I don't stand on any kind of a pedestal and say I'm better than anybody else or, you know, look at me, I'm holier than anybody, you know, far from it. I'm the worst sinner that I know, but I've received forgiveness, healing, and peace through Jesus Christ. And that's the offer that I want to hold out to you and that hypothetical um, couple of guys and, and, you know, and, and everybody, because that's what God offered me. Okay, cool. All right, I'll see you guys later. Thanks for your question, man. It was nice talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Um, good luck in your future. Thanks so much. You too. Excellent. Okay, Jordan H., you're still unmuted because I trust you. Go ahead and ask your question. Cool, cool. So my question is essentially that did evil exist, did the concept of evil exist before the fall? And the reason why I may think it did is because how would God even be able to um, attribute the property of evilness to, say, like Satan feeling um, prideful of himself or Adam and Eve, like going against God's wishes in the garden? 
if the concept of evil did not already exist. He, he would at least have to have some notion of it in his mind for it to exist in order to attribute it to Satan or Adam and Eve, it seems. Is this true, or do you have another conception of evil? Oh, it's interesting. Um, well, according to Romans 5, let me pull it up. Romans five twelve, it says that just as sin came into the world, through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned um in terms of the world of men and the natural world i'm gonna i'm getting a crazy echo can can someone mute or can you uh uh you got we're getting an echo for everybody oh oh i can turn that on my mic start no worries Go ahead. So in terms of the world of men and the natural world, the world of creation, the physical world, sin was absent until Adam sinned. Satan rebelled against God. And my current understanding of when and how that happened was the way that Satan rebelled against God was by tempting Eve and Adam to eat the fruit. That was Satan's big rebellion against God. Uh, Satan, you can't actually wage war against God. God is an infinite spirit. So what do you do? You go and you wage war against his image bearers by trying to um, corrupt God's God's uh, creations, his Im- is the, one, the ones who bear his image. And so in that sense, when Adam sinned, Adam being the representative of all humanity, but also the king of the world, really. Adam had dominion over all the world. So when he sinned, his whole dominion was plunged into darkness, was plunged into death. Um, Childbirth became painful. Child rearing became painful. Work became hard. Thorns and thistles grew up. God said, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. Um, Satan was cursed as well. And Satan was ultimately doomed at that moment too, if you read Genesis 3.15. As far as the concept of sin, that's a tricky one. I don't know that that scripture gives us an explicit answer to that. So I'm going to be very um, cautious in what I say, because I don't want to, I don't want to put words, um, you know, in God's mouth that are, that don't belong there. I will say in Jeremiah 32, 35, God is enumerating all the sins of, uh, of his people. And what it says is they, here, let me get the uh, ESV here. It says they built the high places of Baal in the Valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Okay, so what what is that saying there? Because I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Biblicist, I believe that God declares the end from the beginning, and God God has a purpose for everything, even the evil for the day of trouble. So what does it mean that it didn't enter into God's mind? Well, there must be some sense in which, although God has decreed that evil people do evil things, um, every you know, the best stories all have a very compelling villain and God is the best storyteller. Even though that's the case, God himself is untouched and untainted by that evil. Scripture says that God can't even look at sin. He's so holy as to not even look at sin. What is, how do we know God hates sin? Because he's going to ultimately cast all sin into the lake of fire, sin and Hades and the devil and all those who follow the antichrist and those whose names were not written in the book of life, which is a 
crazy stern warning for everyone. Um, he's going to cast them all into hell, into the lake of fire. God hates sin. And there must be some sense in which sin does not enter into his mind while at the same um, at the same time, or or maybe we might say in a different sense, um, s- sinners sinning is still part of his perfect decree. And we know this because it was part of God's decree that the Father would send the Son to be the Savior of the world. Well, in order for that to happen, Jesus had to be crucified. The ultimate sinful act was not Satan tempting Eve. The ultimate sinful act was the crucifixion of the only perfect man, the God-man, and that's Jesus Christ. So, was the concept of sin there? I'm going to go out on a very thin limb here and say God being omniscient certainly would have understood what sin is and would be, um, and yet that understanding and even that um, that planning to use sin as part of his plan for the greater good, far greater good, and ultimately to overcome sin and destroy sin, uh, and to magnify his glory and his greatness, must yet still leave him untouched by sin Um so that uh, he's not waiting, let's say, let's say he's not becoming morally culpable in any way. So there could be no sense in which God possessed the concept of sin and therefore is the originator of sins, you know, in the sense that he's the, like the, um, the primary cause of sin or something like that, or the, the sinner. Are you trying to make the, the distinction that he has the concept of sin, but he's not actually sinful? There it is. Yep, Exactly. But, okay, but like, I can see that being the case, but, like, in order for him to have knowledge, we might, um, he ha- in order for him to have knowledge or even a concept of evil, doesn't evil already have to exist? You can't know something if something doesn't exist in some way or some form. Uh, uh, why would that be the case? Because there would be on no, um, there are no grounds in which to even believe it. Because, like, whenever I assert a belief mm-hmm. about something, or there's like a cat on the mat, yeah. there's already pre- presuppositions within that belief statement that there's cats, mats, and things of that sort. So, sure. if I yeah. have a notion of like evil, like there is evil in the world, or there's this entity that exists as evil, it presupposes. Um, that evil exists, or at least at some level, even if it's a concept. Yeah, well, sure, I, I suppose. I mean, you know, does the unicorn that you're thinking of right now exist? I mean, in your mind, I guess, but there's not an actual unicorn yeah. there, right? So, um, yeah. So if God is a, a look, uh, like I said, I'm a Calvinist. I believe that God declares the end from the beginning, as scripture says, and therefore God decreed in his infinite wisdom in eternity past that there would be evil in the world. So again, I, I think that God would, would have had to have had the, the concept of that. That does not mean that God at that moment that he had that concept, if it even makes sense to call it a moment, God actuated evil and somehow caused evil to happen, you know, like, like suddenly there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and now evil or something like that. Um, you know, we might analogously say, 
God knew you before he created you. Um, Psalm 139 says, all the days of my life were written in your book before one of them took place, before one of them came to pass. Well, that doesn't mean that all those days suddenly came into existence. You know, at the moment that God wrote them in his book, God planned for them and then God actuated them in real time. I'm also a, an A theory. I hold to the A theory of time. So I don't believe that all the moments that have ever existed and will ever exist are extant at the same time. Like I believe that the only moment that exists is the current moment. And so, um, so, so what that means is God in, in everlasting past can, can plan for something to happen in the future without that thing being actuated at that moment when that he plans it. Um, because that, because the presentism, like, like everything is all that exists is the now but then it just seems extremely odd because then how do we make distinctions between like different events? It just seems like intuitively that there is a difference in time between yes. Jesus' crucifixion and the present day. But that's the, yes, and that's why I'm an atheist because I don't believe Jesus is still on the cross. Um, that moment has come and gone. Um, th- that being said, there is there has to be some kind of relationship between the moments because what Jesus did. 2000 years ago does still affect us. Um, are you a Christian? Do you, would you consider yourself a Christian? I'm considering it. I'll say that. Okay. Well, great. Well, I, I, uh, pray you go all the way and that God brings you all the way because according to the Bible, what Jesus did on the cross 2000 years ago has repercussions in the current moment. Like for example, let's say right now, let's say as soon as we get off this call or even before that you, Turn to Jesus and you repent of your sins and you say, I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm a sinner. I've offended a holy God. And I also recognize that I need a savior. I believe Jesus is that savior. He died on the cross 2000 years ago, just as you said that he would Lord. And that death was for me in my place. And he also rose from the dead and I believe in him and I want to receive his new life. And I, I want to do my best to live for him. So let's say that you did that. Um, and that, that would be incredible. It's find a way to let me know. I'll rejoice with you, man, if that happens. Um, still like you either way. Don't get me wrong, but I, I would I would very much celebrate that. Um, what that means is that there's some kind of relationship between the, the moment Jesus died on the cross and the current moment when you repent and receive Jesus Christ. Don't ask me to explain what that relationship is. I don't know. It could just be the sheer will of God. I will also say that God does not experience time the way that we do. And so if there's an absolute time that God experiences, it's it's not the same as our time. The Bible says to God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So God certainly transcends our sense of time, but um, that doesn't mean that that B theory is true and that all the moments are equally real um, all the time. And so... Um, Anyway, this this is like a whole. I did write. I wrote an article on this. Um, if you ever were to go to setacase.wordpress.com, uh, I think it's there. Um, it's it's called "What Is God's Relationship to Time?" I think. But if you were to search for Joel Setacase, "What Is God's Relationship to Time?" I fleshed out my whole theory there. Um, I don't claim to be the ultimate authority on that, but it's it's at least one man's opinion on how it could possibly work. So, like. In a sense, you're, are you still saying that God transcends time, but yet interacts with it? But God, your conception of time is that is like presentism, right? Uh, that 
I, I don't know what the term presentism means. I, 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 if it's the same as a theory, then yes. Um, but you might not know what a theory means. So sure. It probably is the same thing. It sounds like it. The only, the, uh, the only moment of man, maybe I, maybe I should put it this way. The only moment of physical time cosmic time, the time in this universe that exists is the present moment. Um, you know what? Oh. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what. Even as I'm saying this, now I'm thinking about the physics of Einstein and I'm, I'm thinking about this, the relative, rel, relativity of time to a certain extent. Um, and and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say we've now reached the limits of my knowledge. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And so... I want to be. I want to be very honest about that. Anything that I were to further speculate would be me literally trying to work out my theory in real time, and that's not what this is about. So I'm going to say I have to stop there. Is that fair? Yes, um, uh, that would be humble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, but is, is clarification just um, to, to wrap this up? Is that you're saying that he evil like may or may not have existed as a concept? But it wasn't present, uh, like in it. It wasn't manifested until the fall. It was not actuated until. It was not actuated in the spiritual realm until Satan rebelled against God, and it was not. It did not enter into our world until Adam sinned. So yes, conceptually, God would have known what evil was, but. In no way was evil actuated until actual sinners actually sinned. Oh, and your by the way, your conception is of sin. Um, what would that be? Is that would it just be like going against um away from God? Um, so I'll tell you what I the way I phrase it in my catechism. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Okay. Okay. That's that's a very simple. That's the that's the way I explain it to my three year old. Sin is disobeying God, violating God's perfect moral nature in any in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so that would be like going against it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Think Pod with Joel Sedekes. I hope you enjoyed this and. If you haven't done so yet, can I ask that you go and leave us an honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts? And hey, if you watch YouTube, why not subscribe to the Think Institute YouTube channel right now as well? This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. And until next time, I hope it made you think.